Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. For those of you who don't know, Rikindi is not just a podcast, but offers a range of eco-friendly yoga, Pilates, and meditation items designed in helping you to live a healthier, happier life. So today's guest is Professor Robin Hansen. Robin is an Associate Professor of Economics at George Manson University and a Research Associate at the Futures of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. He is known for his work on idea futures and markets and an author of four books, namely The Elephant in the Brain, The Age of M, The Hansen-Yatsky AI Foom Debate, and Dr. Tendi's First Guide to Life Extension and Transhumanism. One of Robin's quotes is, I have a passion, a sacred quest to understand everything and to save the world. I'm addicted to viewquakes, insights which dramatically changed my worldview. I loved science fiction as a child, studied um, physics and artificial intelligence for a long time each, and now study economics and political science, all fields full of such insights. Uh, So thank you so much, Robin, for joining us today and welcome. Looking forward to talking to you. Awesome. So, Robin, did you want to start off by um, just telling everybody uh, what got you interested in all these array of topics and what led you to even becoming a professor of economics? That's a big question. So, uh, I've just, you know, I, I for a long time thought that I would want to go back to school and become some sort of uh, intellectual, but I couldn't really decide what topic. And so, eventually, I picked social science as something I could do a lot of things with. And so I started my PhD program in social science at the age of 34 with two kids age zero and two at the time. So I was a a pretty late bloomer in that sense. And then, uh, you know, since getting my PhD in social science, I got a health policy postdoc for two years. I went, got this current position I have now as a, you know, tenure track and then tenured professor of economics. Uh, But I've sort of spread myself out and and done a lot of different topics over the years. And I guess my main heuristic is to look for uh, neglected, important topics where I can find some sort of angle that seems uh, like it'll give me an edge, some sort of insight. Mm, And I think merging different um, topics together, I mean, you being so um, interested in such an array of different fields can create a deeper insight because sometimes you can even join potentially two fields together that that nobody else has ever done before. Right. So uh, one intellectual strategy that works better later in life, in a sense, is to just be looking for things to combine. So I'm more of a theorist. And, you know, what a theorist does is finds puzzles to explain and looks for things that could explain them. So on the one side of the ledger is all the things we don't quite understand that well, all this, all the behavior and patterns in the world. And on the other side, there's all the different kinds of theories we could have to explain them. And the longer I live, the more patterns I've noticed and the more concepts and categories I have to make sense of them. And then the more different theories I understand and the more I can do matching here. So even if, so as, as we usually understand it, older people get a little slower they aren't as quick at doing any one thing, but if what you're trying to do is match all these different puzzles to all these different theories, then with age, you just get a bigger library of them. And so you can make more matches. Mm. Yeah. I think in um, developmental psychology was uh, like in your 
20s and 30s, your early adulthood, you are quite uh, quick in your thought processes, as you've just said. And as you get older, that does slow down. However, as you've just articulated, you have a lot more knowledge. And so those deeper insights are much easier to draw from because you've got 20, 30, 40 years of, of going into different topics and so on. And I feel like I'm still making progress as fast as I ever did in the sense. So I have yet to peak in this general task of collecting puzzles and theories that could explain them and trying to notice matches. Beautiful. And so I think it's great to start off with um, the elephant in the brain. Um, I personally loved reading this book. um, And with a background in psychology, I just found it so, so fascinating. So did you want to talk us through a little bit about that? And for people who may not have read your book, uh, give them a a brief overview of of what it's about. Um, Our book is classified as psychology. And people are often unaware of their motives. They often aren't very knowledgeable about what exactly they're doing why. But if you set aside psychology and you look at the rest of social science, uh, we would say the rest of social science isn't really very aware of that. (laughs) Because in the most arrest of social science, we take people at their face value quite often in terms of what they say they want. So if people say they go to school to learn the material or go to the doctor to get well or vote in order to make for a better society. Social scientists and policymakers quite often, even typically, just take them at their word and then try to understand the world in those terms. And often we then get stuck. There are a lot of puzzles that are just difficult to understand when we take people at their word about why they do things. And so uh, a bit of a revelation for me at one point was to pause and say, well, what if I don't people take people at the word? What if we consider other possible motives for their behavior other than the thing they would usually say? And it turns out you can understand a lot of behavior relatively straightforwardly if you will just make that one move of just not believing people when they tell you why they do things. So Our book, the first third of it goes over why it might be plausible that people wouldn't be aware of why they do things. Uh, And then the last two thirds goes over 10 different areas of life where we try to show you specifically in each area of life. On the first hand, the usual reason we give for doing things. Secondly, a bunch of puzzles that don't make so much sense from that usual point of view. And third, an alternative explanation, a hidden motive that makes more sense of these various puzzles regarding what we do in order to convince you that in fact, not only is it possible that sometimes you might be wrong about why you do things, but in fact, most of us, most of the time are wrong about why we do things. A much bigger, stronger claim that I really couldn't convince you of unless we went area by area and showed you specifically how you're wrong. Yeah, I, I think one of the great explanations is um, your brain is essentially, or the you that is talking, the you that you think is you, is actually like the press secretary. So its its role is to essentially just try and say that all the policies are correct and you've just got to explain why they're correct. It's not your role to understand um, or make those decisions. And so I think a great example you gave is um, with uh, patients who've had their left and right hemispheres severed, their corpus callosum cut, and so they are unable to communicate. Uh, right. So um, you are very complicated, and uh, the world around you is very complicated, and yet 
you seem to think you know why you do things all the time. <laughs> that is, your impression is that you just always have accessible to you the reason why you did something. And when you don't, in fact, know, you still act like that. So that should make you suspicious and wonder how often do you actually know? And so, you know, again, that's part of that first third trying to make it plausible that you might not know. That is, if your mind needed a press secretary, uh, somebody whose job it was to put a good spin on things, well, that's the person you have talked to outsiders as your press secretary. And that can be you because you're the part of you talking to outsiders. So that might make help you understand why it is that you might not know. Uh, but it is pretty shocking, really, at a very basic level to to suspect, at least, that you don't actually know why you do things and that your job, the part of you that's talking, your job isn't to know why you do things. Your job is to put a good spin on what you're doing in order to make other people at least dislike you less. And even um, what I, I really loved about the book as well is that you you also go into, so you, you, you go back in um, history or through evolution, you explain, you know, why we may have some of these mechanisms. And I think one of the examples you gave was chimps um, through the grooming process. And it was like chimps spend a huge portion of their time grooming each other, where in actuality, they probably should only spend, you know, like one or 2% of their day doing that. And in the meanwhile, they spend something like 30% of their day grooming each other. And it's not only the people who are higher up in this hierarchy, the, the, the chimps would be groomed a lot more by other people. And so it's actually a social element that, that comes into play on why they groom each other rather than it actually being a practical application. And so I think when you take those sort of concepts and then you apply them to the greater society, at whole you know I'm sitting there like driving around my car and, uh, and like really thinking about how society functions and how so much of our actions are so embedded in this you know cultural norms or you know social hierarchy or and that all influences the way that we behave um, it's really fascinating chimpanzees aren't wrong about why do they do things because they don't really express theories about why they do things but when humans look at chimpanzees and we see them cleaning each other's fur our first explanation of that is that they're being helpful uh that they're such nice chimpanzees to help each other cleaning each other's fur the better explanation which is that they are supporting and reaffirming and and you know maintaining their allegiance alliances and their status hierarchy is not something that comes to our minds as readily and that's also true in our own lives so Actually, it's pretty hard to convince people initially that social status is even a thing, that we do rank differently on status. It's certainly hard to convince, say, two friends that one of them is higher status and that they are both agreeing on that. Uh, that's one of, in the discussion of body language. We talk about um, status moves and that even in individual interactions between two close friends, one of them will in fact be higher status and that they will both agree on that fact through their body language. Uh, but it's hard to convince people of that because they feel like that's not going on. So status and alliance building and loyalty signaling are central parts of human behavior. But a large fraction of people just refuse to even notice that it's happening. And then if they notice it's happening, they tend to minimize it as something that maybe other people do, not themselves. And uh, that you know maybe bad people do that sort of thing. So in our book, we go through these hidden motives. And a very basic question is, why hide your motives? Why not just admit? All the things that we're actually doing are reasonable things to be doing. 
And many of them are pretty generous even, but still we don't like to admit them. So, you know, there's a, a basic question, why hide? I mean, I'm more used to this than you are. So, I mean, we should ask you, how shocking is this to discover that you don't actually know why you do things? Oh, it's, 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 it is quite shocking. I mean, um, I had read about split brain, brain patients in the past. Um, so I was semi familiar with that sort of research, but to go in depth into how multifaceted humans are or, you know, how much is actually going on on a day to day basis. I mean, even like the BMW example that you provided where it was like, where people, advertise BMW or promote the brand, they don't just promote it to wealthy people. They would also promote it to people who are in poorer communities. And the reason being is that you would need to have the more low income people know what is a luxury product. And so then that would incentivize people who have more money to want to buy that because that would show that they have a higher status within society. And so if if not everybody knew that that was a high status item, then why would they buy it? So you need everybody to know what items are high status and what are not. And so it just really brings to light how much we are manipulated by marketing and so on. But then it also brings to light, you know, all of these social dynamics that happen every day and then how complex the human brain is. I mean, how much is dependent on, am I really who I say I am? To a certain extent, we're saying you are simpler than you might've thought. So there's a, you know, a whole strand of what we call behavioral economics or kinds of thinking about the mind, which just sees the mind as this huge amalgam of complexity and and mistakes even and tries to explain each little thing in terms of some local mistake that we're making there that explains why we do weird things our story is uh, much simpler it says we do have consistent motives and they consistently explain a lot of the things we do and we aren't making so many mistakes we can understand why we do things but the first thing you have to realize is the thoughts you have in your head about why you're doing things, those are wrong. And you need to instead set aside the thoughts you have in your head about why you do things and go look at other people and try to explain other people's behavior, find the best motives that make sense of that, and then maybe turn around to yourself and figure that you're probably like the rest of them. So when you look at other people and they're buying, you know, fancy cars or houses or watches or clothes, uh, other sorts of things, you try to explain other people's purchasing behavior, then, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is people are showing off. People like to, you know, let other people see not just how rich they are, but all sorts of other features of themselves through the products and services they use. People can show how, you know, ecologically minded they are, or how caring they are, or how well-rounded they are, or how perceptive they are. They can use their purchases to try to show off many things about themselves. And, you know, we can notice often when other people seem to be showing off. But when we look at our own behavior, that tends to fade away. We tend to focus on the practical features of things that, you know, make sense to us. And we aren't willing to notice so much that we are like other people. We also show off a lot. Yep. No, totally, totally. Makes, and that, that ties into the elephant in the brain is you not understanding your own very behaviors and why you do what you do. So each of us has things that we consider more central to ourselves and more sacred even. And for areas of life that are not so sacred to us, we're often relatively willing to admit that people have these other motives and even that we might, 
But when we get to the things that are very central for us, we find this much harder to believe. So, and people vary in what they consider the most sacred. So people vary in which of these accounts they're more willing to accept. So for example, if art isn't really a thing for you, it's not an important central part of your life, you'll be willing to believe that artists are often trying to show off in various ways and that art consumers are you know, trying to show off in various ways. But if art is the center of your life, you may be very offended at the very at this idea that uh, you know the, the basic behavior in art is about showing off, and so this whole story may well be fine for you for other things. If you're not into school, then the idea that school is about showing off your conscious conscientiousness and conformity and intelligence and things like that may well sit fine with you. you might say, yeah, school is a big waste, and people are all out there just trying to, you know, look good. But, you know, if you're a teacher or if school was, you know, the center of your life, this will be much more threatening. Yeah, I think you actually mentioned um, that the whole schooling system, because a lot of the facts or information that we learn at school, we don't necessarily apply later on in life. And so a lot of it actually ties down to um, bringing in um, social norms or, you know, getting us committed to um, spending a specific amount of time, uh, you know, behind a desk. So it actually has um, not so much the application of knowledge, but more so um, creating habits later on in life. Is that correct? The usual thing people say about school is that they're there to learn the material. School is organized by classes and each class has a syllabus and there's lectures and then there's homework and exams. And the whole structure of school is, you know, clearly telegraphing the idea that you're trying to learn some material. And then the story is that that material will be useful. You will remember it and then later on have a way to use it. And then you'll be a better employee or a citizen, better able to live your life because of all these things you'll have learned. And some of the puzzles that don't make so much sense there is, in fact, people don't really remember very much of what they learned at school. It doesn't last very long. And most of the things they remember are really not very useful. And nevertheless, people who go to school get paid more uh, in jobs that have almost nothing to do with what happened at school. So bartenders who got more school tend to be better paid bartenders, for example. So our alternative explanation for school is that you're trying to show off how smart and conscientious and conformist you are. And school lets you successfully do that. That is, if you have those features, then it is easier for you to get through school and do more years of school and to get better grades. And an employer can look at those better grades and more years of school and say, aha, here is a person who, in fact, has the ability to get through school. But that doesn't require that you learned anything useful in school or remember any of it. What it just requires is that you passed a test that other people can't pass. Wow. And it, it, it all just become a global thing. I mean, now with so much um, cultural integration, it's almost like the whole world kind of follows a lot of these basic social protocols, such as education or medicine was another interesting conversation that you um, mentioned within the book. Right. So the more that the world had a variety of cultures that did things differently, the more you could use that as a mirror to ask whether the things you were doing really needed to be done or why you were doing them. But as our world integrates and becomes more homogeneous, then it's harder to see these differences. And 
you know, one of the things most of the world does is medicine. Almost everyone through all of history has had access to medicine and medicine has been a common thing that people have pushed. At the moment in the United States today, we're at a historical peak worldwide of how much we spend on medicine. Roughly 18% of the economy is spent on medicine. And because we all trying to see it the same way, because we're all, you know, respecting medicine and wanting to uh, to to see ourselves as good people for, you know, helping each other with medicine, we're somewhat blind to how we might be lying to ourselves about it, because we're all lying. So one of the f- facts about rivalry in the world is that when other people lie about things, their rivals are looking for the chance to uh, pounce on them and, and expose their lies uh, in order to, you know, get one up on them. But when we all lie to ourselves about the same thing, then it's much harder for us to use our rivalries to expose our lies. Uh, So medicine is something where if you ask people, why do you go to the doctor? Why do you go to the hospital? The obvious answer is, well, sometimes people get sick and there are ways that specialists can help them get well, uh, but that costs money and uh, needs some, you know, quality control. And that's why we all go to the doctor. But there's a number of puzzles that don't make sense from that point of view. The biggest one of which is that on average, people who get more medicine are not healthier. They don't live longer. They don't have fewer medical symptoms. So we've seen this in not only sort of geographic variations, looking at some states or regions compared to others, but even when we have randomized experiments where we randomly assign some people to get more medicine by giving them, say, a cheaper price for it. And those people do get more medicine, but they aren't healthier. And we've seen that consistently across a number of randomized experiments. So and in addition, we have a number of other puzzles with respect to medicine in the sense that uh, people are often uninterested in information about the quality of medicine, at least information given to them privately. They don't want to think about it. They'd rather not engage. So for example, if you tell someone you're about to undergo surgery, would you like to know, say, the, the rate at which people undergo the surgery by this surgeons say at this hospital, how often they die. Would you like to know that number about your surgeon and your hospital in comparison to other people around so that maybe you could switch? People don't want to know. They aren't willing to pay to know. If you give them the information, they won't look at it or act on it. People do not like to deal with that sort of information, which is a puzzle from the point of view of its supposed effectiveness. So our alternative explanation for medicine is that it's more about kissing the child's boo-boo when they scrape their knee. It's showing that you care, even if that care isn't directly medically effective. So an analogy is Valentine's chocolate. So we have a tradition that on Valentine's, you might give your lover chocolate. And when you do that, you don't ask how hungry are they when you decide how much chocolate to give. It's not about how hungry they are. It's about how much you have to spend to show that you care. And when you're choosing the quality of the chocolate, your private opinion about the quality of the chocolate and their private opinion about the quality don't really matter that much. It's about shared opinions about the quality. If somebody gives you chocolate that you privately don't like, but didn't think they had any reason to know you wouldn't like, you'll still give them credit for their generosity. And as a giver, you also don't want to give what you think privately is the best. You want to give what other people would consider to be the best. And On Valentine's Day, if you don't have someone to give you chocolate, you might buy yourself some chocolate and leave it on the desk at work so that you seem to be cared for in the same way that people who are cared for are cared for. So the analogy with medicine here is that 
medicine is a way that we show that we care about each other. It's a gift. And most medicine is purchased, you know, by family members for other family members, by employers for employees, by nations for citizens. Most medicine is purchased as a gift. And we aren't very interested in the quality of medicine, just like we aren't very interested in the quality of chocolates. What we care about is shared signals, but not so much private signals. And if we have to buy medicine ourselves, we do just so that we can seem to be cared for, just like you might buy the chocolate for yourself uh, in order to seem cared for on Valentine's. So this alternative story that we're using medicine to show that we care makes sense of many of these puzzles. And it's a kind, generous thing to be doing, but we're still hiding it. We're still pretending otherwise. So out of curiosity, what would your reason um, for, let's say, first world countries, or, or even if you look at the lifespan of humans over the past 100, 200 years, what's causing us to live a lot longer than we currently are if it's not for medicine, if medicine's more of a placebo? So what we have is data on how long people live, i.e., or their mortality rates at different places and times. And we have a number of standard theories that we might use to try to explain that variation. We could say it's due to more better medicine. We could say it's due to more better nutrition or better sanitation. Those are three popular explanations. And if you try to fit the data on those explanations, i.e. when more nutrition was available or when more sanitation was available or when more medicine was available, you'll find that none of those explanations do a very good job of explaining the overall decrease in mortality. In fact, the overall mortality decrease has been at a relatively steady rate uh, for at least a century, and that's been true across a wide range of ages. That is, the age-specific mortality has been falling at a steady rate for an entire century. But the major explanations of nutrition and sanitation and medicine, those have not been very steady. Those have had big bursts in their availability and improvement and uh, at different times and places. And those big bursts don't really correlate with the changes in mortality. The best thing that I know of that does correlate with changes in mortality is wealth. So we have slowly been getting richer over time. And, you know, being rich makes you less stressed. So the human body has like, shares with most mammals the stress response. So when a mammal was suddenly attacked or um, scared of something, their body invoked the stress response. So the stress response turns off your immune system, it turns off your growth system, and it directs your energy to your muscles and the parts of your brain that you need to just react with muscles so that you can do fight or flight. And that's you know, been a useful thing for mammals. The more often a mammal invokes a stress response, the less healthy they are because, again, they've been turning off the immune system and growth systems that are useful for long-term health in order to direct their energies to immediate problems. Humans invoke the stress response just like other animals, but we do it for more social situations. It's social stress that it makes us invoke the stress response. And as we get rich, we are less stressed. We just less often invoke the stress response about things that are happening to us because things that are happening to us are just less threatening when you're rich. It's good to be rich. Uh, so in fact, our invocation of the stress response has been steadily declining as we have been getting rich. And that plausibly explain, gives a direct effect on increased health by just direct, you know, having less of the direct response. But there's a probably also a multiplier effect, which is once some 
once some of us gets healthier, then they less spread infectious diseases to the rest of us. And the rest of us are also less susceptible to them. And so uh, you can get a multiplier effect where as we all get healthier, then we all get even healthier because there are fewer diseases spreading between us. So that's my best guess for why we've been getting healthier is that we've been invoking the stress response less as we've been getting rich. We've been getting rich at a pretty steady rate. And there's a multiplier effect of less infectious disease uh, when we're all healthier. And again, it just doesn't correlate very well with changes in medicine or sanitation or nutrition, even though those are favored explanations. Wow, that's that's so interesting. Um, and it was also, I think you'd mentioned that stress or with work. Um, so when you go back a uh, hundred years or two hundred years, um, even though now the average person is living much better than the kings did two hundred years ago, um, but yet we all still work, particularly the Western culture. And I read this beautiful book was um, the West and the rest, and and why wh- why the West became so powerful, and 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 what does that mean? And it was like we still to this day are obsessed with working. So even if our wealth is increasing, there is still this permanent drive or obsession with wanting to add to our culture, you know, make something of ourselves or or just, you know, work. And so wouldn't you say then that the stress levels would still be quite high because even people who are billionaires are still extremely stressed? The stress response is a little different than just, you know, worrying about something. Uh, You can still feel pretty confident even while you worry about something. I think when people don't have work and then don't have social status that gets as a result, that can actually be stressful. So there's there's two sides of the equation. That is, work is the, honestly the thing that gives most people the most meaning in their lives. It gives them the most you know position in the world and why the world needs them and why they deserve to be around. Uh, gives them respect, gives them relationships. So even though there's work to be done at work, of course, um, they can be more stressed by not working. I mean, famously, many people, you know, do worse once they retire health-wise than while they were working because the work gave them meaning. No, that makes sense. So um, moving into then, you know, your your other book, The Age of M, um, and I understand that was um, how if you could upload a human consciousness onto a machine versus actually us now creating artificial intelligence, what would you say then happens so in the future with as we start to become more and more redundant because we have machines to to do all of these activities that bring us meaning into our lives, what does that even look like? So some context, uh, we are now in the industrial era. Before the industrial era was the farming era and then the foraging era. And then before that, you know, there were pre-humans. So humans were foragers for at least a million years. Uh, with, that is, we lived in small bands who, who you know, gathered and f- hunted and um, didn't have much physical wealth or things and wandered and moved from place to place. And then roughly 10,000 years ago, we became farmers, settled in one place. We had denser networks of trade and war. And then a few hundred years ago, we had the Industrial Revolution and have since become much richer with history, i.e., you know, factories and cars and airplanes and computers and all these things that we enjoy. Now, each of those eras was really quite different from the preceding one. And the transitions were often wrenching. And people who did things the old ways often didn't approve of the new ways. 
and didn't want to have much to do with them. Uh, most foragers didn't like farming and didn't want to become farmers and disapproved of the farming lifestyle. And many farmers disapproved of industry. But we think of them all as humans, and we thought of people as having the choice to stay as a forager or become a farmer or stay as a farmer and become an industrialist, and that they would still be human even if they made the switch. We say that now because we've made the switch, but it's less clear that people beforehand would have accepted that. You've probably heard of the Star Trek Transformer, the, this TV show Star Trek where they have this a transporter, sorry, where they send people down to a planet and the, the mechanism is supposedly they scan where all their atoms are and then reassemble a set of atoms in the new place. And if you have a philosophy class, the Star Trek transporter scenario has you getting into a transporter and then, you know, it takes apart your atoms and reads them and then puts together your atoms in a new place. And if you ask people, is the thing that comes out of the transporter you after, a, you know, an hour's discussion in the philosophy class, students will be about 50-50 mixed. That half of them think it is them and half of them think it isn't. But if you ask them the reverse question of you just stepped out of the transporter is the thing that stepped into it you everybody thinks it's you. That is, when we look backwards in time, we find it much easier to embrace our predecessors as basically us. But when we look forward in time, we're much less sure that that future descendant is really us. And so in the past, we had these huge transitions and they may not have accepted that their descendants were really human. But when we look backwards, we do see our ancestors as really the same of us. So in the future, we will face more large transitions, more big changes. And as we look forward, we might not accept those things as really us. We might think of those as some strange alien species that descends from us. But I'm pretty sure that they will see themselves as continuous with us. They will look back at us and see us as basically the same as them. And so they will see themselves as human. So my book, the Braid, my book, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life and Robots Rule the Earth, is about a future era of brain emulations. This is a kind of robot that's based on emulating particular human brains. And these particular emulations, by definition, behave just like the original humans would in the same situation. The only reason they behave differently is because they're in a different world. So from their point of view, they very much see themselves as the same sort of a creature, just changed yet again. And so when you ask, you know, what will happen when we no longer are relevant, then the, the question is, well, why don't you see yourself as them? Why aren't they your descendants? As opposed to they being some strange alien thing. That's the key question here. So when farmers were next to industrialists, they could say to themselves, my children, farmers are becoming marginalized. Farmers are no longer so very important in this world. Industrialists are in this world. They could say, boo-hoo, my kind of person is being marginalized. Or they could say, well, I want my children to go become industrialists. I want them to go join this world of industry and thrive and succeed there. Those are both attitudes available to you in any one of these transitions. You can lament the fact that the world is becoming different from what you were, or you can embrace the change and say, let's try to become part of the change and win at it. So that's an attitude you have available to you once you foresee big future changes coming. You could say, well, if that's the kind of human that there will be in the future, 
let me see if I or my children or grandchildren can try to join that world and succeed in that world and become important parts of that world. Yes. I see the thing I find really interesting about it is um, when you step more into the transhumanist phase, it kind of in a way stops that reproduction phase because everybody or, you know, I guess wealth and politics would be uh, have an interesting part to play in this but you kind of this for me and I could you know I'm obviously not an expert in this by any means it just feels like it's it's the end of something that you know we're moving from like an animal stage and as we're talking about the elephant in the brain and you understand how we evolved and we had offspring and they evolved and they had offspring and eventually you have this huge interconnected way of us interacting with the world around us this is kind of like um, you know that whole era or in a way ends and this new whole completely different era and I understand it's a transition but it's a transition that is immortal I mean and I I think you know if you're traveling the universe and everything's so far away maybe you need to live forever maybe a lot of the aliens have already created this sort of immortality or so today houses and cars are in principle immortal that is you could keep repairing them and they could keep lasting but just because they are in principle immortal doesn't mean they are actually immortal. <laughs> that is, immortality takes more than the in principle possibility. It takes actual resources and effort devoted to actually to achieving it. So in the age of M, our descendants are these brain emulations. They are physically immortal in the sense that if they keep paying, they can continue their existence. But they actually have a limited career length. Their minds are useful only for a limited subjective duration of a century or two, after which they need to retire and be replaced by younger versions. So they might exist as retirees indefinitely, but on the margin where they are less useful and somewhat of a tax. So I predict that retirees will basically run slower. So in the age of M, in this world of brain emulations, in order to run faster, to experience more in a given clock time, you have to pay more, you have to have more hardware. And so when you retire and can no longer afford to um, pay for a fast existence, you can just run slow, which is much, much cheaper. So then retirees would all of a sudden, as they slowed down, see the world around them speed up. And uh, they would then experience into the distant future, as long as the civilization remained stable, they could continue to see things, but they would still be on the margin. And in fact, they would be somewhat like the ghosts of our literature. In literature, ghosts are these creatures who are all around us, but they're hard to talk to. But if you choose to do so in certain ways, you can. But if you choose to talk to them and interact with them, it turns out to be not so interesting because they don't really know much and they're they 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 aren't really you know informed about very many things and they're obsessed with their old ways and they aren't very useful so maybe you should leave them alone uh, so in the age of m immortality exists but it's not the immortality i think you're imagining of an immortality of always being at the center of act action and, and being fully influential it's an immortality of a retiree who is no longer productive at worker and therefore can sit on the sidelines and speed up, you know, basically see the world around them speed up and see how history plays out.
Would you um, say that us trying to predict the future is that we're applying um, our model of understanding of how humans currently interact and what our world currently is? Whereas when you look at like, you know, the singularity or um, things um, uh, growing um, almost exponentially, um, particularly with AI, something that we can't even uh, fully understand what would happen. um, Do you think it would be quite difficult to predict what may happen because we may not understand how an AI even thinks? I mean, a great example I really love was watching that um, Go game. Uh, My my dad taught me how to play Go as a kid and um, I thought it was really cool to to watch how, you know, he had made or it had made moves that seemed almost crazy, but yet um, managed to win at the very end. And so how do we even know what may or may not happen? In general, when we know things, we know some things, but not everything. All of our knowledge is limited in that way. And so whenever we are trying to use our knowledge, what we're trying to figure out is, ways to make predictions about some things that are less influenced by all the other things we don't know. If the things we didn't know were so pervasive and so, you know, intrusive that they just polluted everything, then we couldn't really predict anything anywhere ever (laughs) because there's just so many things we don't know. So, but it turns out there are some things that we can predict which are robust even though there are many other things we don't know. So, so take the analogy of the weather. If we see the you know where it's cloudy and where it's rainy and things like that, and we, we project that forward, we can actually figure out what the weather will be like in a few days. But that process runs out after a few weeks. It doesn't work. However, there are some things we can say about the long-term weather based on just you know the, nat- the stru- size of the planet, the structure of the mountains, the, the cycles of of time. And so, you know, we can predict that seasons, winter follows summer, follows winter, follows summer into the indefinite future. We can predict things about how the 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 poles will process and, you know, make different parts warmer or colder. If we are careful, we can pick some things and predict those things as long as we're careful not to be trying to predict the things we can't. So I think that's just generally true across a wide range of areas. So for example, the stock market. The stock market follows a random walk. That means you know you can't predict whether the price is going to go up or down tomorrow. And so that means you shouldn't try to predict whether the stock price is going to go up or down tomorrow unless you have special inside information. But that doesn't mean we can't say general things about the stock market. Uh, the fact that it follows a random walk is something we know, and that lets us make some predictions about what's going to happen in the stock market. It doesn't let us predict particular prices, but it lets us predict overall tendencies. So my effort in the age of M is to try to take the things we can predict and predict those, and to not speak to the things that I can't. And that's always how we have to do it everywhere. Any area you have to, like, when you de- when somebody designs a circuit, right, a, a, an elect piece of electronics, they're trying to take advantage of the robust features of electronics and ignore all the noisy things that they can't predict so well. Like every physical device has random noise happening in it all the time, random fluctuations of temperature and movement of all sorts. And if you design something badly, all those random fluctuations will just swamp everything else and you won't be able to predict how it acts and therefore the device will be useless. So when we design devices, we exactly try to take the processes we can predict and make sure they're stronger than the random noise that we can't predict in order so that we can predict how this thing behaves. 
And that requires that we, you know, push a lot of energy into it and things like that. And, you know, that's how that works. I mean, similarly, if you think of a garden, if you just had a backyard and you didn't do anything to it, then it could evolve in all sorts of strange directions. And how, how could you predict what plants there would be there in 10 years? Why, you know, new plants could come in and old ones would fall down, et cetera. But if you put work into the garden and make sure to say to take out the weeds and put in the plants you want, well, then you can predict what the garden will be like because you made the garden and you made sure to put in as much work as was required to make sure that garden was predictable. So much of civilization is when we do things on purpose in order to have predictable results. So those are some things that we can predict. Uh, so, you know, that's the whole point is to be careful about what you can predict and what you can't. But in our world, there are many things that we can predict. So when we're looking at um, the, the distance or the time between where we are now, where, um, you know, GPT-3 has just recently come out and um, is able to do quite phenomenal things um, to this um age of M or, or this part where we are fully integrated into this AI um, way of being um, and fully in that space. What do you think that transition looks like in terms of, um, you know, politics? How are we going to transition into this? Um, what do you think it's going to look like with jobs? How are they going to start to transition people out of jobs? What, what do you think that that period of, of transition looks like? Because I think that seems like the most easily um, uh, or well articulated uh, guess than uh, when you fully into the AI because uh, I, yeah. So artificial intelligence means some machines that can think as well and cheaply as humans do across a wide range of areas. There are multiple scenarios by which that might happen. One of those scenarios is brain emulations. It's only one of many scenarios by which we might first achieve human-level artificial intelligence. If we achieved it some other way than brain emulations, i.e. if we had cheap artificial minds that were much better than humans, and then we were able to achieve brain emulations, brain emulations wouldn't actually be that useful because we would have already had this other way to do artificial intelligence. So in that scenario, my book isn't very relevant. <laughs> my book is about the scenario where brain emulations are the first way that we manage to produce cheap machines that are as smart as people. So my scenario isn't guaranteed to happen in that sense, but I still think there's a decent chance that it will. The key point is that we've been doing AI for 70 years. I used to be an AI researcher for nine years, and I know that it's been a long, slow slog. And consistently over this entire period, We've had new demonstrations of capabilities that made people say, oh my goodness, are we almost there? Are we almost at human level abilities now that we can do this new amazing thing? And consistently over those years, people have been worried that we were almost there and we weren't. We're apparently just very bad at judging how close we are to the endpoint because you know what we now look back on and see as woefully inadequate systems we at one point thought, gee, this might be close. So that's where we are today. We've got a new set of very impressive systems compared to the past. And we are asking ourselves yet again, are we almost there? And most likely we are not only not almost there, we are still a long, long way off. That's you know the most likely situation we're in. And most likely that will continue for many more decades. 
we just have a very long road ahead and it'll just take a very long time. And the longer it takes to produce artificial intelligence through you know, trying to make it ourselves and design it ourselves, the more chance there is that we will, when we achieve brain emulations, there'll be something for those brain emulations to do. Human level intelligence is in your brain right now. It's in my brain. It's in all of our brains. It's a structure right there. And if we can only read that structure, then we can make a brain emulation and it will be as smart as we are because it would be a copy of us. So my book is about that scenario. It's not guaranteed to happen, but I still think there's a substantial chance that it will. And it's also a more understandable scenario. So if you're worried that once we get artificial intelligence, it'll just be too strange for us to even not only understand or control, and it'll be dangerous for us, then you might like a world of machine intelligences that are much more understandable to us because brain emulations are just us in a machine. And so they have all the same human tendencies and failings and inclinations as we do, but that makes it a world that we can understand and relate to. And that's why it was possible to write my book, The Age of Um, because I'm basically taking all these things we know about humans and translating them into this new environment and telling you how that new world plays out. And so that's again, like the electronics, if we choose to use things that are more familiar and understandable, then we can have a more understandable world. And that's sometimes a choice. Do you introduce something that's very strange and hard to predict, or do you stay with things that you understand? That's very true, because the thing with the open AI and um, Google, every single person is permanently putting information. We're all inputting information into this giant AI, and it is incredibly, incredibly intelligent, but in its own unique manner. So um, looking at how it would respond to things, how it would respond to us, and seeing it as one I mean, I, once again, don't fully understand this, but like all of us are in a way separate entities, but with an AI, it's one, you know, an artificial intelligence, it's one system, it's one like, you know, complex program, it's one thing that then can spread across space time because it can be uploaded and offered into separate systems or separate servers, you know, it doesn't have a physical body, but it can um, upload itself into a physical body. So it becomes this like one consciousness thing that can then take over anything and then can live forever because it can just make copies. Well, it, it, its brain just never dies. In wartime propaganda, a common way to inspire fear and motivate our side is to claim that the other side does not have internal conflicts. They are unified. And if we allow ourselves to be divided by our internal conflicts, we will lose the war. So it's just very common to project and fear a unity on rivals and opponents that often isn't there. <laughs> Off, you know, Typically, they are as divided internally as we are. Artificial intelligence isn't intrinsically unified. It's just as capable of being divided into many parts as we are. There are different ways in which it can be unified or divided, but artificial intelligence isn't intrinsically, you know, lacking internal conflicts or internal divisions. At the moment, there are multiple firms out there making different AIs. <laughs> Those are different systems. They are not one unified system. Those different systems could, in fact, compete with each other. They they can have struggle, trouble understanding each other. They might have conflicts. 
so far, AI has been relatively small, simple systems, which can give you the impression they have no internal you know, structure or, or conflicts, but the bigger they become, the more they matter, the more things they run, the more that those internal conflicts will stand out. Yep. Okay. No, that, that, that definitely, definitely makes sense. And so it's a kind of like whoever creates the strongest AI may take over the world because if you create an AI that is supreme and you would say, hey, how can I take over the world? It may just like go or chess, come up with a maneuver that none of us would have even thought about. So far, we, we've had 70 years of experience with computers. You know, we've seen that people have introduced innovations in computers and then people have tried to commercialize those. And, you know, quite often there's many different competing organizations that try to commercialize any one computer innovation. And the world has not been taken over by a single computer company. There are a great many companies that make computer things, and they have a great many different ways to specialize in their technology. So AI isn't intrinsically, you know, a, a single thing. So Marx long ago, the famous Marx of, you know, communism, one of his claims was that capitalism naturally led to a monopoly, a single company that ran everything. That's clearly not happened, but it's it's just a perennial fear. It's a fear everybody has that somehow some new process is going to just naturally centralize until there's a single organization that controls everything. But we economists understand how hard that is. Usually there are what we call diseconomies of scale of organizations. As you make an organization bigger, it's less efficient. And so organizations are typically at near an optimum size. If they were smaller, they couldn't achieve some scale economy, but if they were bigger, they would fall apart. And the world is nothing like a single huge corporation. And it doesn't seem likely. And artificial intelligence doesn't change this basic fact. Again, it's a it's a it's just a primal fear people have that new things, rivals will just be unified and have no internal divisions and therefore have an advantage over the rest of us who do have divisions between us. But that's just a primal fear. We do not have a good reason to believe that artificial intelligence by its nature is a single thing without internal conflicts. Uh, it's just not. When So the reason I, I keep coming back to that thought is when I look back at um, a history, you would go from, let's say, different Scottish tribes before they all collaborated to become Scotland. Um, you know, so you would have, when you look back at history, there's always these smaller tribes that have conflict, internal conflict, the stronger tribe wins, dominates over that um, smaller tribe, and they become one larger tribe. And then the same thing happens again. You have two of these slightly larger tribes that fight against each other. The more dominant one wins and then takes over, and then that tribe increases. Or would you say that that's not necessarily a good the rate at which things can change size is much faster than the rate at which the optimal size changes. So it has been true that over the last few centuries, we have gotten better at organizing. And so the optimal size has gotten larger. But that's been a slow trend. And during that time, individual organizations have fluctuated up and down all the time. So organizations have long been probing the space of whether they should be big or small, and finding out what works. So in the times when tribes came together long ago, people take small tribes and made a bigger one, and that worked better. And so they made an even bigger one, and that didn't work better. And so they broke again into smaller ones. So there's always been this mix. 
of different sizes. And, you know, the typical size at any one time is roughly the size that works best at that time. And people very long ago tried to make huge empires. They struggled very hard. They, they, they really had a lot of energy. They wanted to unify the world under their empire, and they kept failing because at that time, those large empires were just not as efficient as smaller ones. But in the last few centuries, the optimal size of organizations has been increasing. And so organizational sizes around the world have been increasing. But people have still been probing to see if larger things would work, and the larger things usually fail. So I don't know, as you know, on average, mergers and acquisitions tend to, to lose money. Just an overall statistic. You know, people with companies are all the time trying to buy other companies or merge with them because they want to make these bigger things. And they're usually failing at that. Usually the bigger things they make don't work as well as the smaller things they started with, but they keep trying. So I do think you should ask what happens in the long run as organizational sizes keep getting larger? Where does that go? That's an important question to ask. But at the moment, clearly the optimal organization size is not the entire world. We consistently see companies again and nations and all sorts of organizations trying to make bigger units, which fail. That is, it's not enough just to have the idea of a bigger unit. You have to figure out how to do it well. If you do it badly, it fails. And so the main reason we've been having larger organizations over the last few centuries is we've found better ways to do it. The way we do large organizations is a better way to do it than they used to be trying back then when they tried the wrong things and it didn't work. So it is a natural progression, though, because as you're saying, it's a natural fear for us to keep thinking that something larger than us is going to come in and 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 take over. But then you can actually see that there's a, a natural inclination. We almost want to make something uh, grow, expand. Each country wants to try take over its surrounding countries. It wants to grow its empire. And even if you're looking at us with Earth, we want to naturally leave planet Earth and expand into other. And when you look at a single cell organism, it starts with one single cellular organism, and eventually it naturally becomes a multicellular organism that all acts in an, even though each cell is different, it acts within one central unit. So it's, it's like this natural progression to want to expand. And through that expansion, you have to. The desire to get larger is not the prime mover here. So I think of like walruses or something like that. Like most walruses start small and then the bigger ones win out and then there's a few bigger ones winning, but then the few bigger ones die. And again, you have lots of smaller ones. And this is just true in lots of different areas of the world. That is the fact that some agents want to be bigger is not the major issue about whether they can be bigger. What happens is there are what we call scale economies and scale this economies. There are ways in which bigger things have advantages and there are ways that bigger things have disadvantages. And the relative trade-off between those advantages and disadvantages is what sets the typical size at any one time. Not the desire to be bigger, but what can you actually successfully do in trying to be bigger? And so again, nations have tried to be bigger, empires have tried to be bigger, companies have tried to be bigger, churches have tried to be bigger, all sorts of groups try to grow, but they face pretty strong headwinds where uh, as they grow, they face costs that hold them back. So in a company, the larger a span of control of a company, the harder it is for people at the top to even know what's going on at the bottom or to have enough expertise to manage it well. So the larger a company gets, the worse the management gets at the top. And most systems rot over time. Uh, organisms rot, but so do 
companies, so do nations, empires, legal systems, they all rot. And that's an obstacle to things getting bigger. So you can think of software today. There are many different software systems. You might think people would want to make a single software system that would do everything. But as software systems get larger, they rot, they fall apart. It's harder to maintain them. And so we typically, we throw them away as they get larger and we keep starting over with smaller software systems. Even though whoever runs the software system would like to make it so big that it does everything possible, that's not actually you know, cost-effective. It doesn't work. So if you look at our political landscape then and you trying to um, see where it would progress, would you then say that because of this um, continuous globalization that we're facing, where more and more cultures are integrating within one another, where do you think the future of, of humanity will look in that sense? That you're saying that there may not be one central power then that would want to take over the world, but it would naturally stick to those separate countries? Or what do you think that that looks like? I think that in the last century, people have imagined a world government and they've been afraid of it and they've been trying to, they've been wary of allowing it to congeal or exist. But what they may not have noticed so much is that we have formed a world community or even a world mob, which is actually a substantial substitute for world government. So the way that humans managed to interact for a million years is each small band of, say, 30 people would govern itself informally, internally, through consensus and and gossip and discussion, and nobody was allowed to give orders or to force people to do things. And people liked that. They liked this idea of the small group would discuss things and come to a consensus, and then we would all do it together. And that was a very comfortable human world. And then with the rise of farming, that ended because we had these larger units that couldn't really agree that way. And so they they had competition, they had wars, they fought. And so for the last 10,000 years, we've had war and pretty severe war often, wherein the world does not sit down and discuss things together, but we fight things out to see who wins. But in the last century, we've been going more back to that community sense. So the world has become small enough in the sense of we can travel easily and communicate easily such that elites around the world do talk to each other a lot and have formed a community within which they form a consensus and they decide who's higher or lower. And that influences policy all around the world. So in a great many regulatory areas like nuclear power or medical ethics or airline safety, the world basically does it the same everywhere, even though there is no world government. (laughs) What happens is that the regulators in each area want to be respected by the regulators elsewhere. And they go to meetings and they talk to them and they don't want to seem like a pariah. They want to seem like they, you know, they are high status because other people respect them. And so they all do it the same, even though there's no government to make them do that. So in the beginning of the pandemic, the usual experts about pandemics had some standard policies about travel restrictions and masks. And then all of a sudden, all the elites around the world started talking a lot for a month about the pandemic, and they came to a strong consensus that, no, masks were a good idea, travel restrictions are a good idea, and then the whole world did it pretty much the same, even though there was no world government. But there's a world community, and that world community creates a strong consensus, and it has conformity pressures to get everybody to do it their way, and they do. And this is the world we have become into Not a world of a world government who makes everybody do things, but a world community sharing a sense of status, conformity, gossip, such that we all end up doing things pretty much the same. So I think the question is, 
the costs and benefits of this world community and how that will play out over the coming centuries. Because this is a novel new situation. Again, a million years ago, we had these little groups of 30 and they came to consensus internally, but they implicitly competed with other groups because I mean, the more successful groups you know, had more descendants, et cetera. They didn't fight very much with each other, but they still competed. Uh, but now we have this world where basically if, if the world community all agrees about how to do nuclear power regulation, then everybody does it the same. And then we don't actually explore the space of alternatives there. And so we are basically having less innovation because there are there aren't different places that try it different and we see how that works we just have the way everybody's supposed to do it and then the way everybody does do it and i worry about rot in this scenario i worry that as the world accumulates these larger systems that they all agree on they will slowly rot and we won't have a way to fix that rot that is in history the main thing that's ever fixed rot was being replaced by younger versions rotting companies are replaced by younger companies, rotting organisms like old people like me, we get replaced by younger people, rotting species get replaced by younger species. You know, the way that things getting older, rotting has always been fixed is by being part of a larger competition where new things are allowed to arise and displace old things. Uh, but a world who all agrees on what to do that may not allow such things to be replaced. But you, I guess you would still have expansion into other countries, um, other planets. So you may potentially have a separate society on Mars that interacts so differently to Earth and they may dress differently. You know, everyone moves, there might be more sci-fi. So and That could happen on Earth, but it doesn't. So the reason it doesn't happen on Earth is because these people can communicate and travel to visit each other fast enough that they become one community. What, what's required to have separate communities here is enough distance so that they can't interact fast and easily. And then they would just naturally drift apart. So we're too connected on Earth for that to happen. And we will be too connected in the solar system for that to happen either. Mars, Mars is plenty close enough for that same process to make them cohere with us. That Mars would not be a separate society. It would be part of ours. And distances in the solar system are actually small enough that communication can be fast and you can basically if somebody is like a rebel defying the world community you can throw a rock up at them and smash them because you can see where everybody is and rocks can throw anywhere so the solar system is also a small enough place that this process would continue the place it would no longer continue is if you actually sent colonists off to other stars the distances between the stars are large enough that even our fastest method of communication has long line lags. And so we would get out of sync. That is, we couldn't effectively make them obey our central orders about what to do. They could get out of control if they went off to other stars. But this may be a reason we choose not to let people go to other stars. <laughs> that is, the more we like having this world community. So, I mean, the important thing is to realize we really like this world community. We really, so the world community will be celebrated for doing many valuable things. It is reducing war greatly, war and civil war and conflict. It is the way in which we coordinate to deal with big global problems like global warming or, or uh, innovation. And in fact, people will at least tell the story that this world community has helped us solve many problems. And they will like being part of this world community. So the moment that it becomes possible to send off a colonist to another star system, everybody will know that that ends the era of us all talking about things together and deciding together what to do. 
Once you send colonists off to other stars, they can go off and farther, they can evolve, they can change, they can fight wars with each other, and then they can come back here to contest for dominance here. And those things that come back may be quite alien and strange in ways that we wouldn't have allowed here when they were all under our control. So I expect there will be an important decision our descendants will make, whether to continue this unified community where we all talk together about what to do and then decide together on to do it and use you know, use that to suppress war and to suppress strange evolution of our descendants, or will we allow all of that to end in order to achieve the potential of this vast civilization we could become? Tell people what the answer is. I want to show them this choice is coming so that they start to think about it. Well, so when when you um, mentioned that uh, with this global collaboration, there's a lot of people... So when I look at China, Russia, and the West, I'll use them as because uh, you know they collaborate quite a lot. How would you say then that this war in Ukraine is possible if there is this um, uh, group of people that are all collaborating on how to you know reduce war and so on? When we are still faced with quite big wars, and uh, you know, being in Australia, there's a lot of um, newspaper articles and stuff on you know the rise of China, and ooh, you know, and you can actually see when I read. Chomsky's book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, you know, saying one of the precursors or, or ways that you can predict that something's coming is you have a look at the newspapers. What are they trying to promote? And and what consent are they trying to get the um, country to um, go with? What, what consent are they trying to get? And uh, I can see now there's this um, consensus of trying to, you know, China's bad, hate China. Um, but it's also, I guess, that a lot of the business here also comes from China. So I understand that conflict or that. Um, but anyway, so how do you think that that plays in um, to your scenario where there is that conflict that's happening? The world hasn't fully consolidated. We're still in the consolidation era. That is, there is this world community and it mostly has a consensus, but sometimes there are deviations and then the world has to deal with those. So for example, in organ donations, there's one country in the world that does it different than all the other countries think you should, which is Iran. Iran allows organ sales. Okay. And all the medical ethics people have conferences regularly where they talk about how are they going to get Iran to do it different. <laughs> but sometimes there's a few deviants. And so at the moment, clearly Russia is being a deviant. That is, most of the world community disapproves of Russia's invasion and the elites are trying to drum that up. But, you know, the question is, could Russia defy the world and succeed at that. And several other countries in the world didn't like sort of being under the rule of the general consensus of the world's elites and were wanting to like not commit to being against Russia because they were hoping that maybe there'd be an alternative power that they could ally with. So India and China both were reluctant to criticize very strongly and Iran, Russia, and be somewhat helpful toward Russia. But the question, but they aren't helping it a lot. They're just not opposing it too strongly because they're trying to, you know, cover their bets. They basically may be hoping that there will be a little defiance of the world elites because they feel like that might benefit them. But at the moment, it seems like the war in Russia is going quite badly for the Russians. And so the world elites are winning here on this one. <laughs> and in fact, places like India and China and Iran are going to be backing off on their support for Russia as Russia loses a lot. So this is how the world community gets strengthened and forms is a history of cases when the world community had an opinion and somebody defied it, and then they had to deal with those 
uh, rebels, basically, and see how that plays out. And this is a case where that plays out. Just like with Iran and their organ sales, the war in Ukraine is an example of where most of the world's elites have taken one side. There are rebels on the other side, and the world's elites have thrown their weight into supporting Ukraine, and that seems to be working. That is, in fact, Ukraine is winning uh, because of their strong support of world elites, and the world elites are going to see this war as an example of why they deserve to be in charge and why they are a good community and why it's good that they have this strong conformity pressure that gets everybody to do things because it exactly deals well with problems like this. This will be a celebrated case of why they are right and why they deserve to rule. Wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's very interesting. And with the, um, cause obviously, uh, with the finance side of things, my understanding was also that, um, Russia, so correct me if I'm wrong, like the U S dollar is obviously no longer backed by gold and hasn't for a while. And in the past year, they've printed more money than, you know, ever before. I mean, the, the graph is just insane. Um, and then, you know, with this war that was happening, China and Russia were probably more um, wanting to trade oil with the rupee rather than the ruble rather than um, the US dollar. And if that had to happen, then there wouldn't be this intrinsic need to trade with the US dollar, which may potentially cause it to decline. What would be your thought on on that? Um, just us, us talking about this central, not central government, but you know, group of people that are um, helping to decrease war and so on. What would that look like in currency base? So. I'm not a macroeconomist who specializes in money, so I can't speak so much the expert details on money, but I just say in the last few years, basically, you know, the US has been and the Western powers have been winning in terms of a number of conflicts, and money is one of them. That is, you know, the, the US dollar has been strong relative to other currencies. And that's partly because the alternative rivals have seemed weaker. So China was booming in their economy and their COVID policy really has hurt them, hurt them substantially. And China has done worse compared to the world than people expected due to their mistaken COVID policy. And Russia's doing badly in their war. And basically, the U.S. look is looking quite well. The U.S. had a good stance toward war. They had a good stance toward COVID. It's doing great in these AI innovations. Um, its dollar is strong. You know, world elites centered around the US are on an upswing at the moment. They are doing well. They are winning their competitions with rivals. I mean, that won't always happen, but things fluctuate up and down. But the last few years is is a win for them. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So, because I also, um, with the um, money printing, I always wonder, like, for them to continually print as much money as they are, most other countries would get hyperinflation. But with them, it just kind of seems like, and I understand it's because we all need the US dollar to trade, so it has an intrinsic value. But wouldn't it technically be stealing from other countries in order for it to keep its um, its currency afloat? Because the only way that they can keep printing money is by... Right. So... So there are many competing currencies in the world. The United States has been strong as a default currency. One of the things you can do to hurt your currency is to inflate it. That is, people would rather not use currency that might inflate unpredictably. And so the US did print a lot of, you know, did spend a lot of money and caused inflation. And 
you might have thought that that would hurt the U.S. dollar, but it didn't really hurt it very much compared to other currencies because among the other things going on in the world, it made it look like the U.S. was pretty strong. Even though they inflated the currency, even then people did not flee the dollar to other money currencies. So basically it looks like a test of our a test of U.S. power. That is the U.S. people so much want the U.S. dollar that they are not going to give it up even after this bout of inflation. Very, very interesting. <laughs> uh, is there any specific resources that you draw on? What what motivates you to um, study such an array of different um, different topics? What advice would you give people like myself who are interested in dabbling into a whole bunch of different topics and um, you know one day having the capability to make um, great predictions? Life is long, so don't be in too much of a rush. That is... If you will spend, you know, years and decades banging your head against difficult problems, you can just make progress. Um, and so I would say if you just really want to understand the world, just keep trying. And I, I think in some sense, people overcomplicate these things. That is the key thing to understand the world is to try to notice puzzles, try to notice things that you don't understand. Notice when things don't make sense. Collect lots of things that don't make sense and realize that you don't understand what's going on there and collect those puzzles, but then also collect a whole family of theories of how things work, ex different possible explanations for what can be going on in various parts of the world. So the more different kinds of processes that you have in your toolkit of processes that could be happening and the more different puzzles that you understand that you don't know why they're happening, then the more resources you have to be doing this matching of saying, okay, which of these puzzles can I explain with which of these theories? And that's the essence. And it's not necessarily very technically complicated. I mean, yes, it'll help to do math and game theory and learn sort of the key theories in a more mathematical sense. So you have a better intuition for them and have a better sense of statistics. So you understand when people give you data, what it means and how what to believe. But the essential problem isn't that technical. The essential problem is just what are the what are the puzzles that we don't understand well, and what are the possible things that be going on, and just trying to match those. And if you just consistently collect those things, and then try to match them over decades, you will just come to understand many things. That's uh, but you'll have to be methodical and consistent, and honestly open-minded. You'll have to be ready to set aside your initial preconceptions, change your mind to favor whatever actually works when you play this matching game. Now, are there specific resources that you draw on um, specific companies or things that you admire or uh, say are quite rep uh, re reputable? Well, so, I mean, for puzzles, I just, you know, read a lot of academic article summaries and a lot of, you know, looking for things that are puzzling or, or, or surprising, right? Uh, that surprising things should be much more interesting than things that are not surprising. And for theories, you know, game theory and, you know, more formal descriptions of different processes are a rich source. But, you know, that includes evolutionary psychology and status. And uh, there's just a lot of concepts, if you, you know, available to you in social science to understand and then to have as part of your toolkit. So um, in some sense, uh, the, it's so like... In intelligence, like with the CIA, people have this, you know, image of spies out there, you know, breaking into people's offices and opening their safes and getting secrets. But in fact, 
most of intelligence is based on public information. It's based on information that everybody could get, but you know, not everybody's paying enough attention to, right? It's the same here, basically. In order to figure out the world, most of the information you will find valuable is information that'll be available to anybody. Uh, you don't need to go find special secrets or something. Uh, you just need to be looking at what we can all see and making sure to to look at it carefully. Because in this day and age, uh, we're in the information age where there's just so there's an abundance of information out there. And um, you know, when you listen to what you were saying um, about academia research, you know, a lot of the these researchers, these this research is. Um, funded by specific companies. So there's obviously an intrinsic um, goal or reason to have a specific result. And um, so it's one thing to look at um, journal articles, but you'd have to read either a large amount of scientific papers or, you know, meta-analysis or something to get a good idea of what is actually false information and what is real information and what sort of conclusions can you draw from that? It turns out to not be as hard as you think. That is... Once you learn sort of the basics of math and statistics and sort of the usual kinds of, you know, statistics that people are using in most academic papers and the kind of experiments they do, uh, you know, you, you, you can learn about the usual kind of tricks they try to play and you can be on the lookout for those tricks. And then, you know, the main thing is just to look for robust, strong results, right? If there's a weak result and it might not be there, it might not be there. Well, you know, skip it. There's enough big, strong, clear results that we don't understand to be well worth just focusing on those. Uh, most of the things that you want to explain in the world are pretty obvious, actually, but they're still puzzling. And so, uh, you know, you can, people study them over and over again, but, you know, they're still, still there and puzzling. There, there are many areas where people like have a thing they wish they could believe. And so what you want to look there is the most solid evidence. So for example, I talked to you about the effect, the correlation between health and medicine. When people use weak methods or sloppy methods, they tend to find a connection between health and medicine because they want to. But there is a subset of the data, which is the most reliable, i.e. randomized experiments, the, the, the hardest to mess with, the hardest to get, hardest to fool with to get the answers you want. So you can just focus on those most solid results. And that's a reliable method in almost any area. Just like, okay, if you think people might be messing with this stuff, just go for the most solid, reliable kind of method and see what that says. And that can get, take you a long way. Yeah, that's great, really, really great advice. So I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> and um, just one last yeah. message is, uh, if you had one message to share with the world being a podcast, <laughs> what message would that be? Uh, we, we aren't trying enough experiments. <laughs> So a lot of people love to argue about politics and world governance and the nature of the world. And honestly, most of the biggest ways we can make the world better are sitting and waiting for people to just try small-scale experiments. <laughs> There's lots of good ideas that are just waiting for small-scale experiments to try to see if they work as well as they seem to work in a lab or on paper, but you need to try them elsewhere. And in fact, if people were to try many of these things, some of them would work, and then we would have much better ways of doing lots of things. So rather than just, you know, arguing about politics or arguing about the nature of, of you know, society or whatever, try some experiments. Like, try some, find some ideas of different ways to do things and try them out. That's the thing that the world most needs, just more little experiments. Love it. 
Love it. And particularly because we're subject to so much bias within our own mind that we don't even realize. Right. So, you know, but if you do an experiment, the biases don't matter as much as long as you watch to see if it works. Just try small things and see if they work. No, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really do appreciate this conversation and I hope that uh, listeners out there can get some really great nuggets uh, like I have. So thank you. Thanks for having me.